Welcome to the University of Pittsburgh's Health and Explainable AI podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Gosporé, a health and science reporter. Join me as we cover advancements being made in health informatics and explainable AI for students, researchers, and healthcare practitioners interested in applications of artificial intelligence and machine learning. This podcast is produced by the University of Pittsburgh's Health and Explainable AI Research Laboratory at the University of Pittsburgh School of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences Department of Health Information Management. Headed by Ahmed Tafdi, Pitt's Hex AI Lab cultivates extramural collaborations with academic institutions both nationally and internationally through its research, educational contributions, and this podcast series. Hello, and welcome back to the Pitt Hex AI podcast produced by the University of Pittsburgh's Health and Explainable AI Research Laboratory. I'm Jamie Grams, your host for today's session with Dr. Sarah Wheeler from the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, where we will discuss clinical pathology as part of the diagnostic process and how explainable and trustworthy AI has the potential to help transform this important area of patient care. Dr. Wheeler is an associate professor at the University of Pittsburgh Department of Pathology Medical Director of Clinical Chemistry at UPMC Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh, the Medical Director of the Automated Testing Laboratory at UPMC Mercy Hospital, and the Associate Medical Director of Clinical Immunopathology at UPMC. Her research interests include infectious disease serology screening, rapid point of care diagnostics, effects of viral infections on autoimmunity, and the appropriate serology testing in children. This is a really special interview for me as Dr. Wheeler is both a practicing clinician and a researcher and an educator at UPMC and the University of Pittsburgh. And she represents one of the many heroes that work in laboratory medicine, behind the scenes making patient care possible. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Wheeler. It's really great to have you on the Pitt Hex AI podcast. It's really a pleasure to be here. And it's great having known you to be able to do this as well with you. Oh, it's our pleasure. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. And maybe can you just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself, your role as a clinician at UPMC, and also as a professor and a researcher at the University of Pittsburgh? Yeah, so as part of the University of Pittsburgh, obviously I'm very involved in education for medical students, residents, and clinical fellows. And then as part of my role as a clinician at UPMC, I'm involved in overseeing medical laboratories, so making sure that all the testing that we're doing is of appropriate quality for clinical care, that we are running the tests that are necessary, and working with physicians when they have questions about the testing that they've ordered or would like to order. And the terms clinical pathology, laboratory medicine, they're used to describe the area of medicine that you work in. So can you share some insight on why this is in such an important part of the patient care process? I love it when you ask questions that I love to answer. So obviously, I feel very strongly about clinical pathology and laboratory medicine. That's part of the reason I do it, and I'm very passionate about it. I think one of my favorite statistics about it is that it's involved in 70% of clinical decisions. One of the other reasons that I really love it is that it allows me to operate in many different specialties within the hospital. So I get to interface with physicians of many different specialties with many different diagnostic challenges that they're looking at or interpretations that they need to make of diagnostic tests that they've ordered. And because we're involved in 70%-ish of clinical decisions, it's really important that we're providing high quality data to our clinicians that is the same kind of day after day. Most of us have have looked in our little 
you know, my UPMC app or whatever other healthcare program we have that we're, we're opening the app and we're looking, oh, this is, you know, what my cholesterol was two years ago and being able to trend important things like HbA1c for diabetics over time and having that be reproducible is of the utmost importance for all of our health, really. And, you know, all of us or most of us have had blood drawn here and there in our lives. But for those of us or those that might not be that familiar with this space, can you explain what actually happens to all those little test tubes when we have blood drawn and how those samples get turned into results? Definitely. So first, all of those little test tubes have to get to some laboratory that can test them. And that happens in really interesting ways. So we in medicine often have the best technology of 1985. And one of our major ways that we transport those tubes is still by pneumatic tube. The tube stations that they used to have when you did drive through banking, we have those on the University of Pittsburgh campus and UPMC. They actually run under Fifth Avenue. So occasionally you'll see Fifth Avenue pulled up. Our pneumatic tubes run under there. So that's kind of a primary way. We also have hand delivery. So often people will walk the specimens and then there are also couriers that run between the hospitals. Once we get those specimens, we then have to process them. We hope that we get them in good condition and there's a kind of whole chain that needs to happen for them to arrive to us in usable condition. And we have to centrifuge them so we can separate out blood cells versus plasma, things like that. And then analysis can happen in many different ways. So we have large, very expensive instruments that can run a lot of different tests very reliably, very reproducibly. But then we also still have things that we have to manually plate or manually pipette and process to get results that require human interpretation to figure out what those results are. And all of that together is kind of our analytical part. And then we still have to make sure that those results get back to the clinician and are interpretable to the clinician, which can be kind of the tests performed at different hospitals can be different. And so we have to make sure that we're harmonizing those results for interpretation. So it it sounds like there's a lot of technology being used within the clinical laboratory. Robotics, maybe automation, what kind of a role do those things have? So we, if we look at laboratories, maybe 20 or 30 years ago, they were mostly people doing what we call manual tests. So they would pick up the blood tubes themselves. They would pipette blood out of the tubes themselves. Everything would be people doing it. We've reduced errors and to some extent reduced our workforce by implementing robotics. We use a lot of informatics to make things work, to make sure that, you know, the patient that we drew the blood on is the, is properly identified and connected to their results. And all of that happens in kind of these robotic systems. It is a little amazing to see all of the tubes that come in and we can just take those tubes, which are barcode labeled. You'll see them when they dry your blood, putting the barcodes on them right on our line for it to read the barcode and connect to people's EMR, which is very impressive. Well, it's really cool having you on today's podcast as both an expert when it comes to clinical laboratory medicine, but also as someone highly interested in science like artificial intelligence. And it sounds like you have a lot of experience with both informatics, with automation, robotics, and also uh, AI. So did you think that when you were studying chemistry back in your days that you would become experts in these interesting areas of innovation? I have to say no. So when I uh, had my first position as a a medical director, the the thing that I always tell trainees is I didn't expect that 50% of my job would have to do with data. It wouldn't actually be necessarily the science or anything else. It was, it's just like managing the data. So that, that was definitely not anticipated, but it has definitely been an area of growing interest. So, you know, we've done a really good job with the 
robotic side of things and with automating the way testing is performed and the way we receive specimens. But we've been maybe a bit behind the curve on managing the data that we produce. We produce very high quality data that's very structured. So it lends itself very well to AI machine learning applications, but we haven't necessarily done a great job of capturing that part of it. So in the kind of like pre-processing, processing, post-processing scenario or pre-analytic, analytic, analytic, post-analytic, we've kind of not done as well as we could in the the post-analytic part. Well, it's impressive to see where the the laboratory is today in terms of adoption of informatics, of automation, and and knowing that trustworthy AI is a, a key area of interest and focus for you. Where is laboratory testing on the adoption curve of leveraging AI today? And what are some key opportunities where you think it can make an impact? Yeah, so I'm pretty sure if the curve includes negative numbers, we're in the negative numbers. <laughs> but that's an, an exaggeration. We do we do actually have a reasonable amount of AI built into our analytic systems. So there is kind of a lot of processing that happens behind the scenes on these very large automated systems that, that involves AI. In terms of AI that is directly interpretable to patients, we're very behind the curve. And I think there are a lot of medicine in general is very behind the curve. You know, there is no room for error here. We have within laboratory data, there's a lot of data missingness and often with with reason. And that that is an, in and of itself a hurdle imputation that does not always work well with laboratory data. And then we also have a lot of built-in biases in our healthcare system that affect our ability to apply machine learning to kind of outcomes. And then kind of, I think that the other challenge that we run into is that it's a regulated space. And so all of the tests that we run are regulated at the federal level. And that means that we have kind of specific hurdles that we have to overcome if we're, if we're implementing anything that will, as an outcome, end up in the patient's chart. So all of those things limit our ability to kind of treat this like a startup mentality or like a fail fast mentality. But that said, we have an awful lot of opportunities for using that data more wisely. So clinical decision support is a major area where we could be doing better. We were already using some AI to improve workflow within the clinical laboratory, but we still have a long ways that we could go with that. And a lot of things that are underway to improve the quality of the results that we're providing from the clinical laboratory. From a clinical decisions point, clinical decision support standpoint, really, we know that one of the top contributors to burnout among physicians is interacting with the electronic medical record. And we definitely don't help that when we give them this enormous spreadsheet of patient results. And often it's sheet after sheet of patient results coming out of the clinical laboratory. And we should be able to reduce that for them. There are you know, many scenarios in which there are specific things that clinicians are looking for, and they have to order a dozen tests to figure out which one of those applies to what they're looking for. So we don't necessarily need to give them all dozen of those tests. We just need to tell them which one is the one that's of interest to them. So that that is a way that we could both help patients and help reduce physician burnout, as well as our frontline clinical workers. So great insight as always. And uh, even though that we're in the infancy stages when it comes to maybe clinical pathology and use application and use of AI for towards clinical diagnosis, it's an area of interest. A lot of individuals doing research in the space, including yourself. And uh, I was wondering if you could share maybe some insight on some of the research you've done I believe around the topic of patient-specific reference ranges or, or some other projects that you or even maybe some of your peers that are doing that you're interested and excited about. So there's a lot being done at the moment. So we a few things that we kind of are already using within laboratory medicine. A lot of the work that's currently being used is focused on images. So when we're looking at blood cells, 
for hematology, um, seeing what what the morphology of the blood cells are. There's already approved technology that leverages machine learning that looks at that and works on that. There are also a lot of laboratories that have developed algorithms to help interpret the results of mass spectrometry data. There are also in microbiology, there are several algorithms in use to help understand when so often when we plate patient blood uh, or other body fluids, we're, we're looking to see if if they have some sort of microbiota growing. And there's already technology that can help kind of screen those plates. So a lot of that's being done. And where I think we have a lot of room to grow is summarizing multiple inputs, results, and things that we can bring together to provide a human interpretable answer. There are also a lot of risk scores currently available, which use laboratory data. For me, specifically, and kind of a, a place that I've started working is in, as you mentioned, reference ranges. So there are kind of two sides of that. When we're looking at patient results, when you hop into your app, something will show up red or will flag as high or low. And the kind of behind the scenes thing that happens is that we we look at what happens to healthy people when they get that measured. and determine what is kind of a normal distribution around that. And we take that normal distribution and apply that and call that the reference reference range. And if patients are outside of that, they get flagged as high or low, which is often why if you're flagged as high and you're just outside the range, your physician says, don't worry about it. That's, that's why, because we're working on a normal distribution. And we can use machine learning to help us in looking at all of the patient data that we have and comparing that to what's known kind of in the textbooks for a normal distribution. And leverage machine learning to kind of impute from the patient results how accurate that reference range is for our patient population. And that's been really helpful because populations vary greatly across the U.S. The population that we serve in Pittsburgh is very different than the population of my colleague in Houston, Texas. And so that allows us to account for things like vitamin D is much lower here than it is in Houston, Texas. Go figure. Um, and because of the sunshine, because we don't get sunshine, Texas gets sunshine. Higher vitamin D in Texas. And another side of that is that, you know, when we're, we're looking at infectious diseases, we often have thresholds that we use. And in some populations, those thresholds are not always accurate. And we, we have not had a good way to look at that. But because we have now access to large amounts of patient data, we can actually adjust those thresholds for specific populations, whether they be low prevalence populations or whether they be, say, children who have different immune responses when we're looking at serology testing. And you mentioned children and uh, also just in general, if you could just explain what is a reference range, how is it established and how does it vary for, say, somebody like pediatrics with the care that you, you oversee at Children's Hospital? Why is a unique reference range is so different and important? Reference ranges are really your comparison to what we're considering to be, quote, normal. And we establish normal or healthy by ideally taking a very large sample size of people who have been documented to be healthy for whatever particular marker we're looking at, and then measuring their marker to see what does the distribution look like for this particular marker in healthy people. We also sometimes inform those from longitudinal studies. So things like cholesterol have been established through longitudinal studies. And it's very important. Some, some markers change with age. And so if you think about markers of bone, they're, they're going to be changing a lot as children are growing. But then once you get to, to adulthood, you would expect markers of bone turnover to become somewhat stabilized. And then as people get older and they start to have some, again, some changes in bone structure, we expect to see those, those change again. And so having specific ranges that are 
physiologically pertinent or that are biologically relevant are important. And then how does AI help solve that problem? You can think of this a little bit like those terrible calculus problems that you got where you had a bag of sand and the sand was like leaking out at a continuous rate. So when we're looking at the biology, really markers are changing because the biology is changing. And often when we're implementing reference ranges, we're kind of arbitrarily saying, okay, up to seven years, your biology is doing this, but seven years plus a day is changing to this other thing. Implementing machine learning or AI allows us to actually model that whole biological process instead of creating these arbitrary thresholds that change from one day to the next, which isn't really how our biology changes usually. So Dr. Wheeler, there's a lot of talk these days around the concept of a lab-developed test and how that might be regulated in the future. Can you just explain what the lab-developed test is and what potential freedom that gives laboratories today? to be able to deliver the services that are needed for the community they serve and how that might ultimately be an opportunity for AI as well? So laboratory developed tests mean that uh, an individual laboratory, which is under a federally licensed medical director, can develop a test that they use on their patients that come to see them. This is a really critical area of clinical laboratories. So it's important to understand that all of these laboratories have someone who is uh, very capable, competent, and certified to be running the laboratory, and they must sign off on any laboratory-developed test that's happening in their space. Because of that, we have the ability to run tests that are not on these large instruments that are specifically FDA-approved. So for, for very common tests that, are, that have very defined chemistry, we, we have FDA-approved tests for those. Or things like mass spectrometry, which is an analytic technique that allows us to separate out essentially small pieces of protein or whatever other marker you might be interested in and identify it very specifically by its mass, as the name indicates. There are almost no FDA-approved tests that you can run by mass spectrometry, but there is a wealth of information about best practices to use in it. And it's really the primary way that we actually do confirmations for urine drug screening. It's one of the primary ways that we look at very low levels of hormone, particularly in children, our children's hospital, I should say. And those tests are, are critical for us to be able to provide timely care to patients. Uh, they are regulated by being under a medical director, and those give us an opportunity to also use AI. So when we were talking about clinical decision support, that that is a piece that could come in as the, the AI to provide clinical decision support could be considered a laboratory test and a laboratory developed test. And then we could use that to provide information into the EMR based on all of the other testing that the patient had left. Additionally, in mass spectrometry, where we're looking at multiple pieces of protein or markers at, at a time, AI, there have been algorithms that have been developed that help to interpret the results that are coming off of that particular assay as well. Thanks. And Dr. Wheeler, thinking about the, the future and, and hearing that the field is challenged with less and less medical technologists becoming available to work in this area and potentially having to leverage innovation in the future, whether it's AI or advanced robotics, what do you think the, the future of laboratory medicine could look like? I think there, there was definitely a point maybe 20 years ago where we thought that if we fast forwarded to 2025, 
we would have a a clinical laboratory that had almost no people in it because it would be all robots. I think that we are, to be honest, always going to need people to facilitate these systems and to handle the outliers. But I think as, as robotics and AI improve, I think we will see that we need fewer people to be able to, because we will have fewer outlier cases. And with the fewer outlier cases, we will need fewer hands to resolve those. But I don't think that we're going to need fewer people to interpret results, because I think that's still going to be an area where we're going to need people because we're going, any AI that we implement is going to need to be explainable. So we're still going to need people to, to help to interpret those results. How many years out do you think it'll be before one of your coworkers in the laboratory will be a robot? I would say right now, many of my coworkers in the laboratory are robots. So the, the large instruments that we run on are really amazing. You know, we have hundreds of tests that we run within the large central lab in Oakland. And all these tubes come in that just have barcodes on them. We put them on this assembly line that runs through and it shuttles them where they need to go, whether that's to an instrument and it runs 20 tests on this one tube of blood or shuttling it somewhere else so it can go to a different floor of the building. So I would say I already have robot coworkers. I I would also say that, you know, we're we are all often relying on AI as we look up what's the latest research on something that we got a question about or those those are things that are already happening maybe half the time that we pick up our phones to be honest. Uh, thanks Dr. Willer. That was great. So maybe given the importance of reporting accurate information when it comes to healthcare and laboratory testing, it also ties into the concept of explainable and trustworthy AI. And the goal of the PitHex AI laboratory is to help make healthcare better through the power of explainable AI. So what are your thoughts on the role of explainability when it comes to leveraging AI in laboratory medicine? Yes, please. We are kind of anything that we're implementing we really do need to be explainable because we have such a low threshold for error. With that low threshold for error in medicine comes the need to be able to understand how how the AI is making its decision so that we can also quality check it. If we understand the decision-making that's happening, that allows us to make sure that, say, the population that's going into it is still appropriate. So our patient populations can change over time. And so when it's explainable, that that helps us to be able to monitor if there are changes in the patient population and if the model is still accurate for our current patient population. So Dr. Wheeler, reflecting on your career, are there any defining moments or specific experiences that helped to shape your journey? And are there any key people maybe that you'd like to call out or recognize as either being an inspiration or a key enabler of what you've been able to do and achieve? That's a really great and difficult question. So I I don't know that there have been a lot of defining moments as such. So there was definitely a, a point when I was finishing up my PhD work and wanted to do something clinical and wasn't sure kind of what to do that this amazing postdoc, Xia Ying, was talking to me and she got some results back from some prenatal genetic testing that she'd done. And she noticed that they were signed by someone who had a PhD, not an MD. And she looked into it and saw that there was this whole field of laboratory medicine. And she passed that on to me, which got me into the field of laboratory medicine. So that that was definitely a change in career path from what I had been considering. 
I think I was really, really lucky to train in my PhD with an amazing MD surgeon, Jennifer Grandis, who she's an absolute force of nature. She has done so much in her career and mentored so many people. And her care for patients and how research can affect patients, I think really pushed me in the direction of diagnostics. Um, I've also been really lucky to work with Octavia Palmer, who is my division director in my clinical work and also a mentor in my research work. And she is also a force of nature who continues to push the envelope on what we can do in laboratory medicine, which is always, every time I meet with her, it, it's an absolute inspiration. I've, I've been so lucky to have both Jenny and, and Octavia. When I first took this position in the university, Laurent Pantanowitz actually allowed me to get into informatics as a kind of first step in this. I knew I wanted to do something with big data. It was an area I was interested in, and he helped me kind of get situated in the environment, which was really helpful. And then I've been really lucky to have lots of collaborators and people who've believed in me that continue to keep me engaged and interested. Shannon Heyman out of Chicago is somebody that's helped me figure out what it can look like to work on AI and laboratory medicine. People across the university that continue to collaborate with me have also been really inspiring and engaging. And then I think probably the biggest one is my dinner conversation. So I'm very lucky to be married to someone that, that works in big data. And Brad has been definitely a sounding board for me to, to say, I have this crazy idea. Is it even possible? And usually the answer is it is possible, but not in the way you think it's possible. <laughs> and to, to kind of continue to, to listen and brainstorm with me and we get new ideas from each other, which is always awesome. You mentioned Dr. Octavia Peck Palmer as being a force of nature, a couple others. You yourself are also a force of nature, and you've been an up-and-coming leader throughout your career, not only in your roles at UPMC and the University of Pittsburgh, but also working within industry and within global scientific societies and leadership roles like the Association for Diagnostics and Laboratory Medicine, or the former AACC, and the International Foundation for Clinical Chemistry. So given everything that you've already accomplished with your roles in patient care, with educating others as an associate professor, or even your research, are there any big aspirational goals that you hope to someday achieve at some point during your career? That's a great and difficult question. You know, I, I think I do this because I find it really interesting. I always get to learn new things. I'm always getting to push into new, new knowledge domains, which I love. and. And it's useful. Like I, I feel that what I am doing is helpful for people. And I think that's, that's really, that's really the goal is for me to be able to continue contributing in a way that is, is helpful for patient care and is helpful to my colleagues as well. And for those that might be following in your footsteps, students that are interested in doing research, are there any areas of clinical laboratory medicine or the science that you're involved in the research where you would recommend looking into that might be an important growing area for projects of interest? Oh, there are so many areas right now that, that people could be involved in. So there are a couple of ways to come at it. So basic science, definitely there are people investigating new biomarkers. That, that's a bit of a long road, to be honest, but we already have a ton of biomarkers that are FDA approved in full clinical use for which we have years and years of data that can be correlated with clinical outcomes or with other clinically important correlates. And 
I think the the sheer mass of that data means that you can find, you know, a, a disease state that you're interested in, a marker that you're interested in, kind of any area of medicine that you might be interested in, and talk to a specialist in that area about what their kind of current challenges are, and then use all of the data we have in that area to figure out how to improve the diagnostics that are happening there. And that's going to apply to 70% of medical areas, to be honest. That's great, Dr. Wheeler. And another thing that you made me think of that you've shared with me in the past that I really thought was enlightening and I appreciated was the potential for AI to help address social determinants of health and socioeconomic disparity. Can you just share some perspective, your thoughts on what might be an opportunity for us with AI in that area? Definitely. So I think I I don't need to emphasize how big of an issue this is right now in our healthcare system. And because we house data that is, is based on people's specimens, we have an opportunity to, to make a difference in some areas. And uh, part of that is because in laboratory medicine, we also work directly with clinicians to also help gate the testing that is happening to make sure that the appropriate populations are receiving testing, that we're not disadvantaging one population over another. And I think AI has a particularly generative AI right now, has a real opportunity to help us in sorting this out by looking at outcomes compared to testing and how that can be um, unequal and how that can be biasing the care that people are receiving. So given the objective nature of lab testing being directly associated with a patient's health, as you mentioned, and also disease-specific outcomes and, and that coupled with all the structured data that lab test results offer, it seems like AI should be a really great complement to laboratory medicine. So from your perspective, what do you think some of the biggest challenges are that we're facing that's holding laboratory testing back from leveraging AI? So I think that there are, the primary answers are the same two to three things that, that hold us all back at some point from the things we want to do. So the infrastructure, we generate a lot of data. It goes into a lot of different systems. And we have to get all of those systems to either talk to each other or load all of that data into a single repository. And that's that has been a challenge that is just now being overcome by large healthcare systems. And we also need resources. That's the, the second thing that basically everybody runs into. I think part of that is part of the lack of resources is that there's this inherent difficulty in accounting for what the value of AI will be and what the value of machine learning can be in laboratory medicine. We're not necessarily great on documenting the value of these things. And so as we as we improve our ability to document what the value is going to be, I think our, we will see that our resources can also, also increase and that there's a lot of value to be had in patient care, in quality of testing, and in operations, to be honest, that we still aren't getting to. And then I think the kind of third thing that we run into is that most of us who, who work in laboratory medicine were never trained in AI. A few, there's kind of a handful of people that were maybe CS undergraduates or, or had some other kind of introduction to, to AI earlier in their careers that have been able to apply it to laboratory medicine. But we have kind of this gap right now in people who, who already have the necessary background in AI and can apply it to laboratory medicine as a domain specialty. And we're, we're working on changing that through our professional societies and through, you know, people that we're recruiting into laboratory medicine. But 
we we really do have a gap in that right now, and it's a great place for students to get get involved and create a mark. Well, that's fantastic. I can tell you from my own personal experience, it's been great learning from you over the past few years. And it's been a really great pleasure talking to you, Dr. Wheeler, and thank you so much today for spending some time with us to explain the important role that laboratory medicine has to patient care and the potential impact that explainable and trustworthy AI can make. Thank you so much for having me, Jamie. It's been an absolute pleasure to collaborate with you. And I have to say the feeling is mutual. I've learned a lot from you in the last few years as well. Well, thanks. So this concludes today's Pit Hex AI podcast interview with Dr. Wheeler. We hope you enjoyed the discussion from the University of Pittsburgh and UPMC. This is your host, Jamie Graham, signing off, and thank you so much for listening in. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in and for following the show. The Health Unexplainable AI podcast is produced by the University of Pittsburgh's Health Unexplainable AI Research Laboratory at University of Pittsburgh School of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences Department of Health Information Management. I'm Jordan Gospore. Thanks for listening.